When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netroots Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. Today we have Denise Oliver Velez with us. She's going to talk to us about the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, especially in the aftermath of the terrible storm that ripped into both of them. But first, we have our lying liar lie of the week. And my lie of the week is something that most folks would have missed because it didn't get a lot of attention. But I think it's pretty exemplary of some of the problems that we face right now. And so I thought I'd I'd bring it up. A fight broke out at an event at Speaker's Corner. Speaker's Corner is a place in London where folks stand up and talk about various issues of the day. And an anti-trans group put together a group of speakers that were going to stand up and say a bunch of very transphobic things. So transgender activists protested that. The organization in question canceled the event. But people from both sides still showed up at Speaker's Corner on the 13th to argue it out. And in the aftermath, there were a lot of stories about a woman saying that transgender people attacked her and beat her up. But thankfully, because we live in the age of smartphones, there are videos of what happened. And the video to me, and I know not everybody started covering news events at Occupy Wall Street, and not everybody has spent as much time as protests as I have. But the video is pretty clear to me in what happened. This woman approached a group of transgender activists, started arguing with them, got in their face, took her camera and tried to lift it above the signs that people were using to block her, started a scuffle by pushing into these folks, and then grabbed one of them, tried to get the person in a headlock. And at that point, when she's grabbing someone else, someone came up and punched her for physically accosting someone. And she has gone online since then and said that this is an act of violence against women and said transphobic things. For example, the trans women at the event are not women. And generally, given a point of view that suggests that she is totally innocent and that she didn't start a fight. But she did. And then she decided to lie about it. And it's pretty clear to me that that she, if not the aggressor, which I believe her to be, bears equal blame for the fight that she definitely started. And I think one of the ways that you know that this is not as it seems is because she didn't report it to the police, even though there was video. And at several uh, forums where the video was posted, she and others asked people to take the videos down because it shows her physically attacking someone. So I've got the full video and some stills that I'm going to post on our website so that you can see them yourself. I'm hoppingmad.com. And I'm going to show you the image where she shoves her camera at people over their signs, where she grabs someone in a headlock, and where she just tries to rip someone's hoodie off of them. And if I could also say about transgender activists in the UK and in general, trans women are the number one group 
that is the victim of hate crimes in most societies today. I read an article that said there was a 170% spike in transphobic violence in 2016 in the UK. These, these women are afraid for their lives anytime they go out and protest because of the attacks on trans people. So there's a reason that they aren't going to want someone angry and aggressive and threatening shoving a camera in their face. In any case, that is my lie of the week. And it's a pretty good one. My lying liar lie of the week is Equifax. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Equifax. You all know what's going on there and uh, the horrors of their um, complete ineptitude are documented in many times in many different ways. But they have repeatedly and in all kinds of different media tried to say, we're doing everything we can to make this right. But and that's that's their lying lie of the week. But I believe that Elizabeth Warren, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, Congress, they're all getting into it now. And Equifax has tried to roll back fees they originally tried to impose, but I don't think where we that we know yet where this is all going. I think this is something that's still in the starting to blow up stage as opposed to the, uh, you know, um, falling off stage. And it is still in question as to whether their attempt to force arbitration on people as opposed to allowing people to band together in a class action suit is going to work. The New York Attorney General, among others, is looking at ways to block that. So I think a lot remains to be said about Equifax, and we will probably be hearing about Equifax again, but they are my nomination for a lying liar lie of the week. I do think that Will's issue, because it is so indicative and representative of a much larger issue and a much larger societal problem across so many countries, is the winner, so to speak, in the hopping mad lying liar lie of the week contest. But I suspect that uh, Equifax might be winning some lies of the week in the future. I just, oh, I yeah. have a feeling, <laughs> I, I have a feeling that, uh, that, that don't worry, Equifax, you guys are going to win your award. <laughs> you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll bring it back. Uh, next up, Will is going to be talking to us about alternative energy and the, some of the political options and the realities of alternative energy here on Hopping Mad. Welcome back to Hopping Mad. So today I want to talk about renewable energy and a lot of the barriers that we're facing towards developing renewable energy resources. And in keeping with something that I want to do, one of the things I want to give you, our listeners, is a response to traditional arguments against, you know, various renewable energy sources. One of the things that you often hear about renewable energy is that it's great when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing. But that sort of reflects the fact that people don't understand the difference between climate and weather and that people don't understand some of the basic meteorological forces that exist just in the world around us. We've known since the age of sail that there are certain places where the wind is always blowing and is always going to blow. And one of the main places that that's true is coastlines. 
the way that weather works near coastlines is fascinating. You get these massive convection currents. The sun shines on the land, warms up that land, while the sea stays a bit cooler. And that creates a breeze from the sea towards the land as that hot air rises. And then at night, water, because it holds on to energy better, stays warmer than the land, which cools off very quickly, which causes a breeze to go from the shore out to sea as the warmer air rises off of the ocean. This is pretty much the way that convection currents work in most places along most shorelines. There's enough of a difference in temperature that you get those breezes. And that's why, in addition to not wanting to get lost, most ancient sailors stuck to the coastline because you were guaranteed to have those sea breezes. So putting wind farms off the coast in areas where you have particularly strong dynamics is a way to guarantee that you're permanently generating electricity. The wind is always going to be blowing in places like that. And the same is true about various other places where different ecologies can come together. It's, it's, you can see from space the line where dry air meets wet air in certain parts of this country, in certain mountain ranges and such. And you can build wind turbines in those spaces that take advantage of similar sorts of convection currents. And when it comes to the sun shining, yeah, you're going to have cloudy days, but you're not going to have a situation where everywhere is cloudy all at once unless there's a hurricane, in which case you're not likely to have electricity anyway because it tends to knock down all the power lines. So people who argue against renewable energy, wind and solar, on the basis that it's not reliable somehow, simply don't understand both diversifying things so that you have solar panels and wind turbines in a lot of different places so that if one area isn't as active because it's cloudy, the rest of the areas are. And they don't understand a lot of those weather currents and, and the way that in certain parts of this country, you're always going to have wind and in certain parts of the planet, you're always going to have wind. That being said, we have seen the cost of wind power drop pretty significantly since 2010. Now, because wind isn't just something that exists on the coast and it, it opens up in different markets and there are issues with transmission costs and the rest, wind technology has had a weird what they call learning curve, which is the length of time that it takes a certain technology to drop in price. Certain areas, it's getting more expensive for various reasons. Certain areas, it's getting less expensive. It's complicated, and I confess, I don't really understand it. And people who study these things also don't understand it. What's going on with wind energy is kind of weird, as far as various studies that have been conducted that show opposite results. And it's not a case of someone trying to cook the books. It's a case of it's hard to get the data, and it's hard to quantify the data. So... Even though it looks like, in general, wind technology is getting cheaper, we haven't seen a, a cohesive data set that would let us draw some significant conclusions about wind energy. But if you compare that to solar, solar energy panels have dropped in price by about 70% since 2010, and they're going to keep getting cheaper. And I talked about 
Florida a lot. We'll mention Florida vaguely in the interview uh, and the way that Democrats have not organized in Florida the way that they need to. But one of the significant places that we need to do more investment in Florida is in solar and home solar and home energy. Florida is a sunshine state, although California has more sunshine than Florida. And in Florida, the way that solar energy works, if you want to sell to the grid, is in many places you just can't. The Florida Republican Party has worked with the various energy companies to charge people who try to connect to the grid money for using the grid to the point that they can't really make any money off of it. And if you do something like certain libertarians have done in parts of Florida and you go off the grid and you're generating enough electricity and you buy one of the Tesla power walls so that you have a significant battery supply and you try to go totally off the grid, you might see your house condemned by local government, which has happened to several what? people. Yeah. There have been several instances where city governments have tried to condemn homes for being off the grid in Florida. And that's, that's because insane. it is. It would be one thing if the way government reacted to renewable energy and the way Republicans in government acted towards renewable energy it would be one thing if it was benign neglect. But in many cases, they're actively hostile towards any development of energy sources that aren't in the hands of large companies and that aren't produced by the folks who hand them rather a lot of money. They are hostile to things that aren't coal because the coal folks pay them. They're hostile to things that aren't nuclear because, well, there's a lot of money in nuclear energy. And I'm not saying that because I somehow oppose nuclear energy. I don't, although I do think most of the plants that we have right now are very, very old and pretty unsafe. So if we're going to have nuclear energy, we need to look at uh, newer technologies like uh, molten salt reactors and other things. But that's a different topic for a different day. If you look at specifically transmission charges, that's where you see the issue. And one of the places that, that sort of is the best example of this is Scotland. Scotland is the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy. They have more renewable energy than they need to power everything in Scotland. But if you wanted to set up a megawatt reactor in Scotland, you would pay the, you would have to pay 25,000 pounds a year just to connect it to the grid. If you set up a similar thing, like a megawatt wind reactor in Cornwall, the government would pay you £5,000 a year. Because transmission charges in the UK are based on your geographical nearness to London and the southeast. Not on the fact that there are population centers in Scotland, not on any other thing. So there it's geography and here it's politics? Yep. And it's also politics there as well. Uh, anything that means economic investment outside of London and the Southeast is kind of looked down upon because most of the folks with money own most of the land in London and the Southeast. So they're rent seeking, essentially. They want that economic activity to benefit them. So they come down on anything developing in the rest of the country. And you see a similar thing here in the U.S. where if you want to put a solar panel on your roof, 
and then connect it to the grid, you're going to run into a lot of problems in states like Florida that are hostile to it. So a place where the Democratic Party could really make some inroads in a place like Florida, where you have people who are sort of a libertarian bent and who want to put solar panels on their roof so they can sell the energy, is to go after that as a major issue. But Democratic Party sucks and hasn't been doing what it needs to do in Florida to, to fight that issue. This is, and it's not for lack of opportunity. Charlie Crist, former Republican, left the Republican Party over this and joined the Democrats. And despite that kind of political coup, we still haven't been able to make any progress on this issue. And I don't know what it's going to take to change people's minds on renewable energy. Well, specifically to help people take this issue seriously. But one of the things that might be a benefit is, hey, this means money for you if you're a homeowner. And one of the places where there's a lot of contention is one of the stakeholders is these power companies that own the grids. And their argument is, well, we own all these grids. We own the way that electricity is transmitted. So if you're going to sell energy to the grid, that turns you into a free rider because you're not going to pay for any of the maintenance or any of the other costs. And really, the, the simple answer to that is to nationalize the energy grid. If the power companies don't want to pay for maintenance and don't want to pay for inter infrastructure growth, then they don't need to own the grid. Same argument applies to fiber infrastructure. Not necessarily federal or state governments own it, but let local governments own their power grids. Let them be the ones in charge of these things. And we've read stories about how various internet companies have been hostile towards small towns trying to develop their own fiber networks. And you have a similar thing playing out when it comes to the energy grid. It's essentially a monopoly. These companies want to control the way that power is transmitted. Because if they don't, if they're just selling to an open market rather than controlling the grid, that will massively cut into their profits. Because you'll have all these folks hooking up their own wind generators and solar generators. And... In certain places, in states like New York, there have been communities that have been able to develop the, the legal foundation to take a building totally off the grid, electricity-wise. But in places that are Republican-controlled, places like Texas and Florida, where there's a lot of potential solar and wind energy, places like the rest of the, the coast of the Southeast, you have governments that are actively hostile to the development of renewable energy. And... For some reason, the Democratic Party has never been able to call out the Republicans and call them anti-business and say that they're costing Americans jobs and communicate to the American people that these guys are playing politics with folks' future, with their job prospects, with their livelihoods, and with potential income that they're never going to see. And the Democratic Party needs to step up and actually fight that fight. Yep. There's nothing else to say to that except yes, absolutely. And speaking of fighting fights and Florida uh, in specific, I received an email from Flippable. I get their Flippable alerts, flippable.com. And um, there is a special election for a Florida state Senate seat. And um, the Democratic candidate is a woman named Annette Tadeo, who, if you go online and take a look, has a particularly attractive stand on issues. She looks like, you know, one of us. But here's the problem. 
The election was on the 26th of September, and the Tadeo campaign had to suspend itself because they're in District 40, which is Miami-Dade. They had to suspend itself for the hurricane. And they requested of GOP Governor Rick Scott that he push the election back, that he delay the election because of the hurricane, and he denied that. So Tadeo's campaign is having to reassemble itself and get restarted with a Herculean get-out-the-vote effort. And that's unusually difficult. She's already in a very challenging district, and early voting started this weekend. So if you can, you know, this is this is a state election. This is one of those elections where small contributions really add up and matter. So if you can see your way clear to sending a little bit of money to Annette Tadeo in Florida, that's probably money well spent. We will put the link to that on our site. If not, you can go online and Google Annette Tadeo. That's T-A-D-D-E-O, T-A-D-D-E-O, and it comes right up. So we just want to drop that little bug in your ear. Her story is actually really interesting. She was born in Colombia, but came to the United States, uh, went to the University of North Alabama and has lived here ever since and is a, is a business owner and is a progressive. I, I really genuinely think that she understands a lot of these issues and she's representative of a lot of the stories you hear about folks in Miami who've come to the United States and worked really, really hard to, to make it here. So as a potential Democrat that can go further in future races, I think that we have a really great prospect. And the, the first step is getting her elected to Senate. And if we can take a lot of these red Senate seats, then we can actually start doing something about the way that the Republicans have been hostile to, to green energy in Florida. So I'm, yeah. I'm really hoping we can come together and get to data elected. To we think about our, our fight as being you know, 2018 and the congressional election and the presidential election in 2020. But these state elections, these are critical. And we have been doing, Democrats have been doing very, very well in the special elections that have been held recently. Uh, we have flipped, I think the count is now we have flipped eight seats and had none flipped on us in all of the special elections that have taken place since last November. So that's Maybe the tide is turning in our direction, but it only turns if we fight. So please keep Annette Tadeo in your thoughts and uh, maybe take a little action. Up next, I'll be talking about how online giants are profiting from hate here on Hopping Matt.
We're back on Hopping Mad, and today I want to talk about how online giants, Facebook and Google in particular, but a lot of big tech firms in general, are actually profiting, as in money in the bank, off of hate and, frankly, as we've learned in spades this week, election tampering. And first, let me give a hat tip to David Dayen, ProPublica, Slate, and BuzzFeed, because they have all done some really great work. And everything I have to say next comes from one of the articles these folks have written. Just last week, it was disclosed in the Washington Post that Facebook received $100,000 in payment for ads that were placed by what are false front accounts, accounts associated with a Russian government troll farm. And as Senator Mark Werner pointed out, some of the payments for the ads were made in rubles. I mean, they weren't even trying to cover it up. They were freaking paying in rubles. And FB is, uh, Facebook is still refusing to release even a few samples of the ads that they've deemed to fit into this category. And they're claiming that they're prevented by some sort of federal law to release these ads even to Congress, which is, of course, completely false. These are foreign actors. Facebook is essentially, they are a willing accomplice to foreign actors who are impinging upon our democracy. And we have got to get serious about this. It is estimated that these ads reached between 23 and 70 million people. The Federal Election Commission, and this is why I wanted to talk about this part of this today. The Federal Election Commission in 2011 was asked by Facebook to exempt Facebook ads from federal election disclosure laws. And the FEC basically had two choices. There are two categories. There's there's the section where television ads, print ads, and those kinds of things that have to follow um, internet disclosure laws. And they have to say who their standard disclaimers. And that's when you get to the end of a television ad and there's that, you know, I approve this message from the, you know, in the candidate's voice, that sort of thing, that is in compliance with FEC laws. The other category are ephemera, and the FEC considers ephemera things like bumper stickers, campaign buttons, and they don't require disclosure statements or standard disclaimers on those things. So Facebook asked in 2011 for their ads to be categorized with ephemera, and the FEC took a vote, and they voted 3-3. So they tied, which should mean, since Facebook has not been awarded the right to be in the second category, that it is still in the first category, that campaign disclosure laws apply to Facebook advertising. The question is, who's going to enforce that? So my question is, is that something, and, and I actually don't know the answer to this, but is that something that the ACLU goes after? I don't know who lowers the boom on that, but it seems to me that that's a lawsuit. Additionally, and this just, it gets worse every time we turn around. I guess that's that's where things go, because now we come to some more information on Facebook's ad platform. It's a self-service platform. You create your own ad, you go in, it's all, you know, you go through the little steps as they present the screens for you. And right up until this week, when they were caught by ProPublica, Facebook had categories that you could target, so that you could target your ads. And they had these just incredible, 
incredibly hateful, hate-filled categories, including these are these were actual categories, and in the ProPublica article, they show the screenshot of them. So we know this is exactly what Facebook had. Possible categories, including Jew hater, how to burn Jews, history of why Jews ruin the world, Hitler did nothing wrong, and oh, by the way, um, Facebook considers the category of Jew hater, which only has 2,224 people who are in that targeted demographic as too small to target. So if you click on Jew hater, they recommend overlapping that with the demo of Second Amendment, which has 119,000 people so that your ad will have greater greater reach. They're trying to help you get your word out. Uh, uh, they also have categories like Nazi Party, um, German SS. And a couple of years ago, they were caught using racial profiling, so that you, uh, racial targeting. So there were categories then like African American, Hispanic, Asian American. In theory, after they got caught doing that, they took all of those categories down. But back to the hate categories, to test the func functionality of these categories, these anti-Semitic hate-filled categories, ProPublica placed promoted posts in each of these categories, and they just basically promoted a post for a, you know, a, a ProPublica article on another whole subject, something not related to this. But Facebook approved their ad in under 15 minutes, but they changed Jew hater to um, anti-Semitic, or at, actually it's anti-Semitism, which is the Polish for anti-Semitic. And I just don't even understand my brain. I, I, don't, I don't understand what the algorithm thought it was doing there, but the algorithm thinks if you change it to anti-Semitism, that you have a bigger reach with your ad, and that's what they're trying to achieve. So when ProPublica contacted Facebook about this, Facebook removed the categories. They stated that it, they were created by an algorithm and obviously not by Facebook employees, that the ad categories are generated by what people list under interests, employers, or field of study. They said they're looking into ways to solve the problem, and they claim to be building, quote, new guardrails, which, you know, I think we'll all believe when we actually see, except that if, you know, if they were being so careful and they were taking a look and they were under fire for this slate after the ProPublica article was released, Slate found that there were still target areas, including kill, and this is just how crazy and stupid these people are, kill Muslimic, M-U-S-L-I-M-I-C, Muslimic, kill Muslimic radicals, uh, Ku Klux Klan, killing Haji, killing bitches, which in case you wanted to know, comes up as a field of study, pillage the women and rape the village, threesome rape, and the neo-Nazi code words 14 words or 14 slash 88. When Slate went to place promoted posts in those categories, the ads were approved in under one minute. But it's Google too. <laughs> Listed on Google as good quality but low traffic keywords, if you're getting ready to promote something, so good quality but low traffic keywords. And again, screenshot of this on the BuzzFeed article associated with this. Black people ruin neighborhoods. White people ruin everything. Jewish parasite. Jews control the media. Jewish control of banks. Zionists control the world. 
Blacks destroy everything. Following BuzzFeed's inquiry, Google Display uh, disabled all of these categories except Blacks destroy everything, which was apparently removed after BuzzFeed pointed it out again when Google made a second pass a few days later. The problem is that Google's algorithm is even harder to police than that of Facebook. On Facebook, you pick targeting criteria from Facebook's list, a list Facebook generates based on things that people enter under gender, location, interest, employer, field of study. On Google, you you create target keywords you think will be listed when people type something in under search terms. So... Google says that in 2016, they rejected 1.7 billion ads, which violated their ad policy. And that's according to their own bad ad report. But when you type in, why do Jews ruin everything? You'll be glad to know that Google suggests 77 additional keywords, 77 additional keywords, just, you know, to make sure again, that your ad has the punch you intended. They inform you that, again, to better the reach of your ad, that if you use the phrase, Jews are evil, that you get 4,000 more searches. In selecting some of these um, terms and purchasing ads using them, Google did stop users and let them know that the keywords they specified didn't have very high volume. So their concern was not that they were hate-filled. The concern was, and that they violated supposedly Google's policy, that wasn't their concern. Their concern was that you wouldn't have enough volume if you use those keywords. Google did ultimately, their platform did, when BuzzFeed went through all of these long list of things that they tried, Google did block Ku Klux Klan, killing Haji, and pillage the women and rape the village. So they were able to capture some of that in their own, you know, internal test process. But really, it really comes down to this. Traditionally, tech companies have argued that censorship isn't their role or their responsibility. And despite frequent and repeated attempts by basically decent humans to break through to them on this issue, no one has made any real progress until Charlottesville, actually. Charlottesville actually broke the ice. Suddenly, supposedly, Facebook has grown a conscience. But In the meantime, this right-wing shadow web has been grown and fostered and is still living on the backbone provided by tech companies at some point in time. And this is a really hard thing to conceive of how to have this conversation. But at some point in time, we have to find a way to talk about the intersection of the First Amendment hate and profiteering. And I don't know if that is a legal case, if that's laws, if that's alternate platforms, if that's social pressure. I don't know how we get from where we are now to there, but we seriously, this is the blood money that tech companies are accepting to act as conduits for hate is much more costly to society than it is profitable to their annual reports. And we have to do something about it. Find them. Find them for every advertisement that is uh, tied to a potential hate group. Like, you know, so there's freedom of speech. And then, but we know that there's basic legal limits on freedom of speech. When you're 
using these advertisements, you are helping terrorist organizations move forward. And I don't think that it's inappropriate to fine tech companies for encouraging and aiding terrorist communications. Uh, ISIS uses these same tactics, by the way. It's not just hate groups. It's terrorist right. organizations right. like ISIS. And, you know, we've had Landon Schroeder on to talk about that. These companies are trying to rely on automation to take care of very, very sensitive work, but it's, it's not working. And until it becomes more expensive for a company like Google to automate a process than it is for them to have actual humans supervise that process, this is going to keep happening. Or until AI develops to the point that it can be programmed with some kind of ethics, but that's very much in the future. And it's going to take a while to get there. And in the meantime, Google is doing a hell of a lot of damage to society by helping these groups move forward by, I think, one of the ways to de describe it is depraved indifference. Yes. They are indifferent yep, to the harm the this term. is doing society. They're not intending to help hate groups. They're not, uh, Google aren't a bunch of Nazis, but they're helping Nazis and they're helping ISIS and they're helping other really terrible groups with their communications. Yeah. And I, I think you're right about finding them. I think that when we are talking about Google having rejected 1.7 billion ads in 2016, how we go about that, you know, the process of filtering those things, finding those things, you know, calling attention to them, getting them fined, that kind of thing, that is a whole layer of, I don't know, Federal Elections Commission bureaucracy and who else? Who is doing that filtering? It's somebody beyond the FEC. But somehow, well, somewhere, we have to be looking for that. We just do. Well, and you don't need to do uh, filtering. It's something you could set up at Homeland Security because the FBI does not want to touch this sort of thing because of their history with political suppression. Uh, it's Homeland where this stuff has been happening. And so you, you have Homeland either set up uh, its own server farm or hire a company that has one and just search Google ads for <laughs> various things, find all of them. I and, can hear Glenn then, Greenwald yelling already. <laughs> and, then, and then once, you know, uh, Homeland is, has, has a list of terrorist organizations that have advertised, you find the tech companies, I don't know, five bucks an ad. If we're talking about, you know, billions of advertisements, which we apparently are, that's a tiny fine that stacks up real quick. And it's way yeah. more money than they make off the advertisements. They're yeah. making pennies for each advertisement. So if they get five, five bucks for that, they'll make the investment that needs to be made to, to stop this on their own terms. And that's, that's all this is about, is, is making sure that these companies have the incentive to not be... To stop depraved. profiting off of hate, yeah. Yeah. And terrorism, too. And terror. Hate and terror, right. Well, and for that matter, you know, interfering in democracy. The, yeah. And I, you know, I think there are a lot of people looking into that, far fewer looking into this, but they are all part of the same thing. These tech giants are, are into our lives in such deep and pervasive and dangerous ways that it is incredibly difficult now to figure out how we go backwards and address these these problems, basically. But yeah, finding them, finding them seems pretty straightforward. Next up on Hopping Mad, we have Denise Oliver-Velez. We're going to be talking about 
the hurricanes and the damage done in the Caribbean and some of the history of the region here on Hopping Up. We're back on Hopping Mad. Denise Oliver Velez is an adjunct professor with State University of New York at New Plots. She is an applied anthropologist and teaches cultural anthropology and medical anthropology, but that's only her day job. Denise is a feminist and activist of long standing with deep experience going back to the Young Lords Party and the Black Panthers. Denise is also a featured writer at Daily Coast and is our very first guest, or was our very first guest on the very first. First hopping mad, and also the first guest we had guest we had on after the November election. Welcome back, Denise. I'm glad to be back with you. We really brought you back to talk to you with, about what's going on in the Caribbean after Irma, and particularly about what's going on in Puerto Rico. But before I get to that, I wanted to ask you something else first. On our first show, and in fact, right after the November election, I asked you about how you have managed to so tenaciously hang on to hope, despite all that's happened. Are you still hopeful? Yes. (laughs) I can't give you a time frame for the hope. I mean, it's not like I hope and things are magically going to correct themselves like by next year. But um, there would be no point in struggling for change unless you had some hope that putting your foot into the waters of change was going to have some kind of effect. Now, does that mean I'm going to live to see all of the magical things that I'd like to see, like an end to racism, happen in my lifetime? No, but um, my hope keeps me engaged. That's sort of where it's at. That's a great way to say that, actually. That's a great perspective. With Hurricane Irma in particular, newscasters were busy breathlessly reporting the moment Irma made landfall in the U.S., and by that they meant Florida. Of course, Puerto Rico had been hit the previous day. What do you think about a campaign to send American news organizations copies of maps with Puerto Rico circled in red and United States written on it in huge red letters? I would join that campaign. And in fact, I spent an unbelievable amount of time on Twitter tweeting at news organizations to remind them that there are parts of the Caribbean that are the U.S., like Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, St. Croix, St. John, you know. And it's kind of ironic because I teach a course on the Caribbean, which I designed for my university at New Pulse, because the Caribbean had fallen through the cracks academically. There was Black Studies, which was looking at basically African Americans, and then there was Latin American Studies that was looking at places like, you know, Mexico, Central America, and South America. And I kept saying, but what about the Caribbean? And I open my class every year saying to students, the Caribbean is a place that hurricanes pass over on the way to Florida. Or (laughs) the Caribbean is 
carnival cruises go. Other than that, we pay almost no attention except to Cuba and Fidel Castro, and he's not even alive. And it makes me extremely angry, particularly because I think that people have no conscience about consciousness about the fact that the island of Puerto Rico has about three and a half million Puerto Ricans. And here on the mainland, we have about five million Puerto Ricans. It's the second largest Spanish-speaking ancestry group in the United States, other than Mexican-Americans. And people have no sense of Caribbean-Americans at all. And when you think about it, and they, they sort of, it's a weird kind of situation because the way that the demographics are counted, if you look on, you know, wonderful Wikipedia and you look up Caribbean Americans, they have a list of like West Indians, you know, the black people, and they don't count people from Spanish speaking countries as part of that group. And then there's another group. You know, they sort of throw in Haitians. But when you begin to look at the numbers and the huge numbers of people who have ancestry from the Caribbean who live here in the United States, and then on top of it, those who are American citizens, it really angers me that that's completely ignored. And it's pretty stupid from the perspective of if you're looking at Democratic Party politics, that a majority yeah. of them are Democrats. And um, I'm, I was really pleased, and I'm usually not very pleased about Andrew Cuomo, um, even though he's my governor, and I will vote for him again because I'm not hardly going to vote for a Republican. But Cuomo just got back from St. Thomas, and he was requested to come to St. Thomas by the governor, uh, Governor Mapp of St. Thomas, who's from Brooklyn, New York, who was a member of the NYPD, and he's now the governor of St. Thomas, and he wanted Cuomo there because there's a close relationship between the state of New York, which has the second largest number of Caribbean peoples um, as, as its population, um, I think the first largest at this point in time is the state of Florida. Florida, right. Another one of the states that Democrats should be paying attention to. And instead, we focus on, oh, yes, Irma's on its way to Florida. Meanwhile, it was devastating islands in the Caribbean, starting with nowadays people in America finally know the name of the island of Barbuda. Unfortunately, it's because Barbuda was demolished 95% and is now empty because every single person has been taken off of that island. So, um, you know, I get angry. I get angry about Sonia Sotomayor every time somebody says, oh, yes, she's an immigrant. No, she's not an immigrant. She's from the Bronx. Her parents are from Puerto Rico. They're American citizens, you know. So excuse me if I had to rant for a minute. And her book, by the way, is absolutely terrific. My Beautiful World, Sotomayor's book, just as a side comment, absolutely beautifully done. 
Okay. Yeah, it's I this this is one of my pet issues too and it infuriates me too cuz I grew up in Florida. I had Puerto Rican students at my high school. I have grown up uh with the sound of Spanish in my ears and I have come to recognize that our neglect of the Virgin Island Islands of of Puerto Rico is anything but benign. It's we we aren't we've got this group of people that we hold as colonial possessions, which is something I don't Mm -hmm. think the United States should have. And we, despite there being intense pressure within these communities for them to acquire statehood, we haven't provided that. There are nationalist movements growing that would like these countries to be nations, and I don't blame them at all, considering the way that we treat these, these places. And it's infuriating to me that there are a group of people who are part of the United States, who are Americans, but that we don't treat as Americans and that we don't think about as Americans and that our government basically does nothing for, even when there's a disaster. And our government has done an awful lot to undermine over the years. I mean, the United States snatched Puerto Rico um, in 1898 as a result of the Spanish-American War and then Puerto Ricans were made U.S. citizens in, I think it's 1917, the Jones Act. And so the fact that when we talk about colonial powers, we're always talking about like Great Britain and France and places like that, except that we have colonies. I don't care what you want to call them, insular territories, you know, protectorates, blah, blah, blah. They're colonies. And, you know, the fact that Puerto Ricans are citizens, people from St. Thomas and St. John and St. Croix are citizens, Puerto Ricans serve in our military at higher rates than a whole lot of people on the mainland. And yet, you know, the commander in chief can draft Puerto Ricans, they can go off to fight in our wars, but they still cannot vote for the president of the United States can vote in primaries, but not in the presidential elections. And to me, that is absolutely and totally undemocratic and unconscionable. Absolutely. Well, it's also unconscionable that they don't have voting members of Congress and voting senators. Yeah. And taxation without representation is tyranny. Ha ha, who said that? Except that Puerto Ricans are taxed. And do pay taxes to the American government. But, you know, the representative gets to stand there and pull on somebody's sleeve and say, excuse me, excuse me, sir or ma'am, could you please vote on X, Y or Z for Puerto Rico? Could you please pay attention to what's going on? And people say to me, yeah, but, you know, they speak Spanish. And so what? The first language speaks on colonial language spoken on this continent was actually Spanish when when Florida was colonized. I think the oldest Saint Augustine, Florida is Saint Augustine. The, yeah. Right. Oh, excuse me, Augustine. Okay. It was is the oldest European colonial city you know, city on the continental United States, if I'm correct. You are and on the huh? That's my family. My family goes back to St. Augustine. That's how long we've been. Oh, okay. Well, they weren't speaking English. No, they were not. Um, So it's just, it annoys me to no end that 
Puerto Rico gets short shrift. And somebody had said in a comment, I think on Daily Coast, they said, well, but those people are not really Americans. And I was like, um, last time I looked, the Americas include Canada, Mexico, Central and South America, and the Caribbean. You know, so why we think that we have some kind of God-given right to use and think of ourselves as the only Americans also befuddles me. Well, that's the basis of racism, is that people who are brown or don't speak English aren't really Americans. They don't, they don't really belong in the United States, is the view of people who say things like that. Yeah, well, I saw some people on Twitter saying that Native Americans should be deported because they're not real Americans either. So you're right. It's code for, well, it's not very codified. For, I was going to say it's not very you gotta be yeah. white. Yeah. Yeah. You got yeah. to be white. Puerto Ricans don't count as white people. And folks from St. Thomas and St. John and St. Croix certainly don't count as white people. And um, so you've got sort of this nativist attitude against anybody who speaks Spanish in this country. I'm always pointing out to my students, yeah, we have all those states named like Florida, Colorado, Nevada, California. California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so- but no, you know. We shouldn't get rid of all of those rapists and whatever it is that Trump thinks that people who are from Spanish-speaking parts of the world are. And then those West Indians, well, you know, um, except that some of our finest American citizens trace their ancestry to islands in the Caribbean. For example, look look how phenomenal Hamilton has been. Yes. Well, first place Alexander Carib- uh, uh, Hamilton was from Nevis and then moved to, I believe, to St. Croix. And, um, and of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda, <laughs> you know, only the biggest Broadway show ever. Hamilton uh, is Puerto Rican. So ah, I just, um, I fume. Sorry. Well, yeah. and if I could say something about the way that they talk about West Indians and Haitians, Haitians fought in the American Revolution. Haiti sent soldiers to the United States to help us break free of colonial powers because they said, hey, we're a post-colonial nation, too. And they helped us out. They fought for us. And we have repeatedly turned our turned our backs on Haiti. There is actually a monument in Alabama to those Haitians who fought in the American Revolution. I wrote a diary about it a couple of years ago on Daily Coast, and people were so surprised. Like, what do you mean? I said, yeah, Haiti was one of the first places to line up and say, let's go help the Americans fight, you know. But we hear about Lafayette, you know, and the French, but we don't hear about the Haitians that were part of it. And then, of course, the United States turned around and did not support the the Haitian rebellion and the enslaved people in Haiti who were able to kick Napoleon's butt mm-hmm. um, in order to free themselves. And one of the things that I explore all the time is why is Haiti so poor? Well, the reparations they had to pay for being free but nobody wants to go into that history. And the hatred 
of people of color in the Caribbean, and I remember that uh, in our history, when Puerto Ricans first wanted to become a state, there were Southern senators who, you know, read into the congressional record, we don't want no state full of Negroes. Hello? Let me turn this back and go, since, you know, people are suffering right now in the Caribbean, I want to get back and and really talk about what's going on there. Uh, First of all, I just wanted to say I do have a little bit of concern because I have seen quite a lot of coverage actually about what's gone on in the Virgin Islands and very little coverage, almost no coverage, about what's going on in Puerto Rico. And I suspect that we're seeing more about the Virgin Islands because that's where the resort companies are. That's where um, the wealthy newscasters are parking their yachts, uh, et cetera. So, you know, we're seeing that's again a bias. Re- oh. I, I, I do want to say that that's only recent. In the last maybe three days, have they paid attention to the Virgin yes, Islands? That's what I'm saying. Since in the, the beginning. Hurricane. Right. In the beginning, they didn't. And it has been helpful that there have been sort of massive relief effort concerts with people like Stevie Wonder and Beyonce and whatever, uh, paying attention. And uh, Tim Duncan is doing an admirable job paying attention to what's going on in St. Thomas. But you're correct in that one of the reasons I believe that they're avoiding focusing on Puerto Rico is that the minute that you pay attention to Puerto Rico, you've got to dredge up the reasons why the infrastructure in Puerto Rico is virtually non-existent. In terms of the electrical grid, um, it has been allowed to deteriorate the United States has really not yeah. bailed out Puerto Rico and yet Puerto Rico has been the place where the United States has done everything including you know military exercises shooting at Vieques for year after year after year after year uh, sterilizing a third of the women in Puerto Rico and using the women in Puerto Rico to test all of the birth control stuff, including MCO foam, which was taken off the market because it caused cancer, and birth control pills. You know, it's, it's an accessible place for there to be experimentation. It's also where uh, Union Carbide was able to relocate after various disasters, both here in the United States and in India. Okay, just stick it in Puerto Rico. Well, Um, let's let's talk about infrastructure and those kinds of things in ExtraMad. Before we get to that, while we're still in the broadcast portion of the show, would you tell us a little bit about what's going on in Vieques and Colebra? Because I believe they were more hard, they were more hard hit than um, the Puerto Rico, uh, the, primary island, the big island, so to speak. If you'd let us know what you know about what's going on there first, because I don't know, frankly, anything except the initial reports. Well, what's going on there essentially is that the people, Culebra doesn't have the kind of occupation that Vieques does, but Vieques was flattened. And the problem is, is that if you're going to ignore Puerto Rico as the the big island, there is certainly no 
attention paid to Vieques at all. And I think that there are a lot of reasons. Have people been taken off Vieques as they were off Barbuda or are people still trying to survive there? I think that most people relocated off of Vieques and when they got back, um, I've been trying to reach a friend of mine who has uh, her house is actually in Vieques and I haven't gotten in touch with her Um, I'm hoping that she will email me soon because I tried to call her and I couldn't reach her by phone. So to be very honest with you, I have been looking uh, on the news daily for information other than the initial information, which was that most of the the housing was destroyed on the Echis, not on the main island. And, in fact, I was just looking again, and I saw a post from somebody who said that um, they were getting some assistance on Vieques. Stuff was being flown in, and that's all I can tell you at the moment. It's not the same kind of devastation that St. Thomas got, though. Because okay. the difference is is that they're closer to sources of water. I don't know whether you realize it or not, but most of the water in, on St. Thomas is has been in the past shipped in on barges. Yes, actually, I did know that for odd reasons. I mean, people, you know, can collect rainwater in cisterns, but only the people who are tourists have the luxury of being able to, you know, go to the hotels and let the water run and take showers. My cousin's house in St. Thomas, when I first started going to St. Thomas, I was a typical sort of mainlander, and I'd jump in the shower and let the water run, and he was screaming, like, you get in for three seconds, soap up, you know, rinse off and jump out because of the cost of water. And most of us don't think that way. You turn the tap on and the water just runs. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I'm sorry that I can't give you um, <clears throat> a lot more information about Vieques, but I haven't been able to get it myself. We hear so much about what's going on in Florida, what's going on in Houston, what's going on mainland, and, and trying to dig out information about the Caribbean has been really tough. So uh, I'd like to, we'll talk more about that in a few minutes when we come back on Extra Mad. Folks, you've been listening to Hopping Mad on Netroots Radio. You can catch our full podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, or Google Play. Um, Denise, thank you so much for joining us here today. We just, we really appreciate having your historical perspective and your um current events perspective. It's really lovely to have you with us. Thank you for having me. We're back on Hopping Mad with Extra Mad and Denise Oliver-Velez. Today we're talking about the Caribbean, in particular about Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands and what happened during the hurricanes and sort of what's going on there in general. Denise, you started to talk about infrastructure issues before in the pod, in the show, and I kind of redirected you back to talking about some hurricane things. But I really do want to get back to um, talking about the power grid in Puerto Rico 
I know that the Puerto Rican Electric Power Authority, PREPA, uh, basically went bankrupt in July. And they essentially mm-hmm. walked away from from providing power to the island. And, of course, there's still power. Uh, but I'm not even sure how that's, I honestly, I'm not even sure how that's happening because when I read articles and prowl all over the internet, nowhere does it say Joe goes in every day and turns on the lights in Puerto Rico. I mean, I, I actually have no idea how it is, or Jose, I should say, goes in every day and turns on the lights. I actually have no idea how it is that there are lights, there were lights before the hurricane, much less how there, I mean, there's no light or they're having significant grid problems now. And uh, so if you can sort of get me up to date on that, and then I have some more questions about it. Well, the problem is that Puerto Rico actually generates um, almost all of its own power. Right. And, but it's a combo of, I don't know, I think it's coal, hydroelectric, and whatever. But the problem has been that, one, uh, PREPA is sort of the sole distributor, but the problem has been not that they can't get power. The problem has been with no money, they have not been able to do maintenance. Right upgrades and so the grid and that was one of the things that the current governor who has inherited an unbelievable headache but but people who understand these things have been talking about for a long time you cannot have a system that is not maintained and given the financial difficulties, one of the first things to go was the maintenance in Puerto Rico. And other things went, too, like school teachers, etc. Um, but the, the hat-in-hand relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States, even though Puerto Rico has a governor and elects him and whatever, whatever laws are passed in Puerto Rico can be overruled by the U.S. Congress. And the U.S. Congress is not about to invest money in Puerto Rico, period. So that gets me actually to, let me skip down a couple of questions in my thought process, because you've led me right into one of my questions. Democrats have been pushing on this for a long time, and Republicans have been pushing back. And it's been kind of a, well, I'm not even sure that it can be said that way. I think conservatives have been pushing in one direction, and um, uh, humans have been pushing back in the other direction. But the, is this storm an opportunity for money to get pumped into Puerto Rico, dollars to get pumped into Puerto Rico without conservatives, without Republicans having to justify to their constituencies why they're doing it. In other words, can they pump money in to fix the power grid, So you know, among other things, in Puerto Rico and justify that as hurricane relief? I mean, it's a terrible thing to say that a disaster might have, might be useful, but... But who they? They, the, if you're talking about they, the Republicans, no, they're not going to do that. 
They're perfectly willing to show Americans airlifting in bottles of water, you know, and food, uh, temporary, right? But the kind of investment in Puerto Rico, in building up Puerto Rico, is not going to happen because I don't think that there's a political will for it unless you have Democrats in power. I mean, listen, the Republicans aren't even listening to certain Republican Congress people from the bottom part of Florida who <laughs> are talking about what's the guy that represents the Keys? Um, and he's a Republican, and he's screaming bloody murder, and they don't want to hear it because they're really not about developing, for example, sustainability. Uh, St. Thomas and Puerto Rico could use for a massive restructuring of how there should be a lot more solar and wind. You would think that there would be solar and wind considering, for example, in St. Thomas, it's sunny almost all the time and they've got all of those winds. No, not the way it works. And this is beyond stupid. Uh, I don't even know what to say. And yes, things have been devastated. You would think you could come in with a plan, put the money into it, and then you'd have two places that are, or three places or four, including, you know, St. John, that are really at the forefront of sustainability. But when you have Republicans that don't even recognize climate science, you know, they're not about sustainability. They're still screaming, let's go for coal. I just don't see it happening, particularly if it's not in a place that they don't care anything about because those people can't vote for them. So they're not part of the base. That's just... Incredibly frustrating to me. Um, talk to me a little oh. bit about the water infrastructure in Puerto Rico. I really don't quite understand that. I do, I'm not an expert on, on that. I know more about water in St. Thomas just because, you know, as a young person, I had to wake up to, hello, cistern. I didn't even know what a cistern was. You know, I was from New York City. It's called turn on the tap. I never even thought about where the water in New York City came from until I moved upstate near the reservoir. But um, so that that isn't my my area of of expertise. So Puerto Rico has potable uh, groundwater and has rivers and streams in a way that St. Thomas doesn't. Well, it. It's my understanding, and I don't, and I don't quite know how this works. And Will, you may actually know about this because you're from Florida. When one of these hurricanes comes through the potable water, there is um, seawater infiltration into water supply. How does that happen? A lot of ways, from from what I've been told, um, there is breakdown of the water treatment system that can occur. So water will still flow. There will still be water pressure, but it's not being properly treated. Number one, number two, you have damaged pipes because when the water uh, soaks into the ground and makes everything muddy, water t t has volume. So if you put that in the same ground, that's normally dry with pipes that can break those pipes and lead to contaminated water getting into the system. And it's, it's not just salt water. It's, it's fresh water as well. So to be safe, you'll have boil water orders. 
to kill any bacteria that's making it into the system until they can go around and fix all of the leaks and make sure that water treatment is happening. And a lot of times what they'll do is they'll dump chlorine and other chemicals into the water to, to kill stuff and, and contain bacterial growth and stuff like that. It just it, when you inundate ground with water and I've actually seen uh, a road from a hurricane that happened. It was, it was the year we got hit by Katrina Rita and Ivan where the road had been so inundated that all of the uh, electrical and telephone poles had sagged to one side because the water was so money muddy and they just shifted not because of the wind, but because the, the ground wasn't firm anymore. And uh, that happens to pipes too. And when you inundate, ground with water the the nature of the the land you're on changes the basic structure of it well i was actually curious and i actually looked up the u.s geological survey data on puerto rico and the groundwater network in puerto rico is um they monitor 74 well sites since a lot of the, the water comes from wells. So it depends on, I would, this is my, my guess, in the areas of Puerto Rico that are close to or right on the ocean, places like uh, Loisa, for example, which was hit pretty, it was one of the areas that had damage. And I happened to pay a lot of attention to Loisa because Louisa is also the cultural, historical area of Puerto Rico that's a very African city. And Louisa has a river that flows right into the ocean. And when you have the storm surges, that salt water goes back up into the river. And I would imagine that would be very problematic okay. and would affect the well water. That makes sense. Okay. Thank you. You too. I appreciate that. So, Janice, the other place, of course, where Irma unleashed her wrath was Florida. And there's, you know, half of Puerto Rico has moved there now because of the economic devastation in Florida or in Puerto Rico itself. So do you know, obviously, if you're a relatively new, actually, you're not an immigrant. You've just moved there it goes. You heard that come out of my mouth. That is classic. Right. Anyway, if you have newly moved from the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico to the U.S. state of Florida, uh, you not only get to vote, but you also are newly settled in an area. And that's going to, that generally does not help your economic situation in terms of, you know, the cost of moving, the, you know, settling in, you're, you're relatively new in your job, that sort of thing. How has that community, so in other words, they're more vulnerable. Do we know anything specific about what's going on with the Puerto Rican community in Florida? Has there been specific outreach? Is there, you know, what's going on there? Well, I would say that it's not such a difficult leap because the majority of island Puerto Ricans have family on the mainland. And it used to be centered in New York City, you know, with outposts in places like Hartford, New Haven, Chicago, Chicaricans in Chicago. But over a period of time, lots more Puerto Ricans started moving to Florida. And anybody from Florida who knows that Tampa-Orlando corridor, 
that's very Puerto Rican. Whereas areas like Miami used to be more traditionally Cuban American. Um, but that's beginning to change too. For example, I have, you know, friends that live in Coral Gables, which actually got hit fairly badly in Florida. But, um, so there is already, there has been a Puerto Rican community. Oh God, in Florida for, for decades. And so I would say that when you at least have a support network, when you have social organizations, when you have a sense of community, um, it is, and you also have the bilingualism because even Puerto Ricans whose predominant language is Spanish, you know, go to school and learn English. So the transfer from the island to Florida is far easier than, for example, if you're somebody coming up from a peasant from Guatemala, you know, making it through the coyotes and whatever, and then arriving later in Florida. So there are community resources and economic resources that are available because of Puerto Rican community support. And though there may be difficulties, it is not the same as it is for people coming from other Caribbean groups who may be targeted for being people who are undocumented. Um, and far less difficulty because you're an American citizen, so you can make that move. That doesn't mean that um, Puerto Ricans are not subject to Florida, even with this huge Latino population in Florida, doesn't mean that there isn't racism in Florida as well. Hmm? Yeah. And Puerto Ricans are subject to it um, just like anybody else. I mean, if you look at New York City, stop and frisk didn't just go after African-Americans. It went after Puerto Ricans, too, and now Dominicans. So So how how can we help, I guess, is is my biggest question about, you know, with with the situation in the Caribbean, how can we specifically target help into that area as individuals or as a group? What can we do? Do you know? There have been some suggestions for charities that are on the ground. Um, heck, I don't have the list with me now. If I you can, can give them to not... me, if you can give me those links, I will put them up on our website. Okay, I will. I will find them for you because I tend not to be a just give to the Red Cross kind of person. Yes, exactly. And, um, and and prefer groups that are embedded in the community have been known to do decent work. There are a couple of groups that have been targeting St. Thomas. Like I said, um, I, I, I have very little money to give, but I'm actually sending some money to Tim Duncan because he's on the ground right there in the Virgin Islands, and I trust him more. But one of the things that really brought tears to my eyes was that people in Puerto Rico turned around in the middle of being hit by Irma and having problems, and there was an outpouring of support for people from the Santo Masins that were flown in as refugees to Puerto Rico. 
and people in Puerto Rico opened their hearts and their their minds and their their closets and made sure that people had clothing and stuff and and when I was I was looking at the support in Puerto Rico for the folks from St. Thomas it it just touched me beyond belief and there was an outpouring of support that wasn't coming from the United States government per se Although yeah. people here, uh, Caribbean populations here in, in the United States have been doing their damnedest to um, raise money and to, to send to the particular islands or just to any of them that they're originally from. So I will, I will get you the names of some of the groups that are, are doing that kind of relief work. And but I I I am really happy that you brought up the infrastructure question because ultimately we know that more and more of these hurricanes of this kind of strength are going to take place, and we need to think toward the future and plan for the future, and we cannot ignore that a a big chunk of our citizenry live on islands or live in areas that are going to be affected by hurricanes and there's no solution and you can't just say well let's move everybody that lives in places that get hit you know hit by hurricanes someplace else that's not going to happen right going to happen with texas with mobile with florida with north carolina or whatever so we need to be thinking in creative ways about how to make huracan, you know, less dangerous. And I say huracan because people are not aware of the fact that the word hurricane is Taino and comes from the deity of the the Caribbean deity of devastation, huracan. Hmm? I just learned that this week. And I, in fact, did you post that somewhere on Daily Coast? Maybe I learned it from you on Daily Coast. I wrote a diary about Udakan <laughs> and I referenced it um, during the hurricane when I was busy. There were people at Daily Coast who were putting up wonderful weather diaries, you know, with pictures of all that swirling stuff and, you know, MP, whatever. I don't understand that stuff. I was very happy to read their diaries. I just felt it was important to write about the people who were being hit and who are these cultures and what are these islands. And yeah. I wish that people on the mainland would get a damn map out and look at and identify all those those little dots you know on the map have people on them with incredibly diverse and rich and wonderful cultures and it makes me angry that our essentially we have two close neighbors Canada and Mexico that are paid attention to but our third neighbor is the Caribbean and students in our schools, don't get taught anything about its history and its diversity. And if I can do anything about it, I will. Well, I have to say, when Barbuda got hit, I knew Barbuda was out there in the Caribbean, but I couldn't have pointed to it if my life had depended on it. I got on Google Maps and looked it up because I thought, you know, there's there's all this, you know, devastation there and and uh, and I wanted to know where it was, and I had to look it up. And I, 
my I had a minor in geography in college. I mean, I thought I was pretty good at that stuff, but no, I couldn't have found my Buddha. In my class, and about a third of the students in my class are of Caribbean ancestry, I give them a blank map at the beginning of the semester and say, okay, fill in the names of what are these dots? And even students who were born in the Caribbean can identify. They may know their home island, you know, Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico, but they don't, or Haiti, but they don't know either because it's not taught. And geography is no longer taught as a subject. I had geography as a kid, but I had to train myself, you know, and I know the difference between Barbados and Barbuda. And I know the difference between (laughs) the Dominican Republic and Dominica, which is a completely different Different place. place. And St. Kitts and St. Lucia and and St. Martin and St. Martin, you know, one island with two colonial powers that, that ruled it. But most people don't, and I think that... Some terrifying percentage of Americans, something like 16 or 17% of Americans, thinks our 3,000-mile border to the north is with China. (laughs) So that they they do not know that Haiti and the Dominican Republic share an island is, you know, is minor in comparison to Canada is our neighbor to the north. I mean, it... It is embarrassing and frustrating and all of that. I'm, I'm, I, I hate to sound like an old lady school teacher, but I think <laughs> we need to go back to teaching geography. Listen, my yeah. students, I asked them, what states bound New York? And they were like, what do you mean by bound? I'm like, uh... Because as a kid, I had to learn that, and I had to learn what the capitals of all the states were, and my mother made me learn what the state flower was, but um, kids couldn't even, they said, ah, New Jersey, you know, Well, I think we've forgotten that geography actually matters, that it affects things, and that it affects how people live, it affects war and peace, it affects people's uh, uh, economic ability to support themselves, geography matters. And that we don't teach it is problematic, but another whole show. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, thank you so much for, for um, being with us today and, and touching on all these subjects. I think we Skype has upgraded quote unquote upgraded itself. And I think we lost will partway through this to um, Skype never, never land. But um, I want to thank you for joining us and uh, and just walking us through some of these things. I uh, I admit it's not my strongest area of knowledge, so we really appreciate it that it's yours. Thank you so much, well, Denise. Well, we really appreciate you having me on to rant about the Caribbean. <laughs> I'm always to rant about the Caribbean. Folks, thanks uh, for joining us today on Hopping Mad. <laughs>